This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about what bankruptcy means in Canada. It's really about understanding the basics of personal bankruptcy in Canada, because it's a little different, certainly in the United States, or maybe a lot different, depending on your perspective. But Blair's going to explain what it means to declare personal bankruptcy here, as well as debunk some of the common myths around this very often misunderstood legal debt relief process. Okay, Blair, so can you take us through what it means to file for bankruptcy in Canada? I know that's a big question, um, but I, I, the fact that it's so different than what we sort of see on television dramas every week or hear about in the United States. Yeah, you know, in, in just the, the fewest word possible, bankruptcy is not as bad as you think. And we've got a YouTube video on our channel with that title, and it's many people have this preconceived notion that bankruptcy is going to be you know, incredibly public, intrusive, they'll lose everything, they'll never recover, um, and none of those things are true. We're going to talk about a bunch of factors today of why bankruptcy can make a whole lot of sense for a lot of people and can be such a key step to enable them to have a much better life in the future by putting the past behind them. So what is bankruptcy? Well, it's a federal legislated remedy that allows you to get rid of unmanageable debt. So if you've got too much debt, um, no matter what the source is, it could be government, it could be private lenders, it could be the big banks, bankruptcy is your opportunity to get a fresh start um, unburdened by a, an amount of debt that you may never be able to, re to repay if you didn't get the help. So to be eligible to file for bankruptcy, you have to owe at least $1,000, which is a very low bar. And trust me, nobody files bankruptcy owing just $1,000 these days. Um, but that's the, basically the table stakes, at least $1,000 of debt. And you have to be insolvent. And insolvent means that you can't repay your debts as you're being asked to do so, or that the debts you have are worth more than the assets you have. Even if you sold everything, you wouldn't be able to pay off all your debt. Now, just because you're insolvent doesn't mean you're in bankruptcy and doesn't mean you have to file for bankruptcy. Insolvent is just a calculation you do on a sheet of paper, and many people at many points in their lives will be in a situation where they're basically insolvent on paper. They owe more money than they have assets, but very few of those people will have to file for bankruptcy. What bankruptcy is, is saying, you know, I'm in an insolvent situation, I don't see that things are going to be able to get better, and I need the relief granted by the Canadian government to get me back on track to give me a fresh start. So very quickly, you don't need to get permission from the court or your creditors to file for bankruptcy. You don't need to hire a lawyer to represent you. Just about every bankruptcy in Canada and everyone that I've done over the last 15 years has been a voluntary proceeding. So no one gets forced into this proceeding. If you come and see a trustee, you decide who you're going to work with, when you're going to start the proceeding, um, and almost right away you get some relief from that debt stress and you just focus on complete a bankruptcy proceeding um, to get you that fresh start. And the key that you that you included in, in what you just said is, but you do have to see a trustee. You have to go to a licensed insolvency trustee. They're the only person who can facilitate or navigate you through the system. They've got you've got the clout, you've got the legal representation to do that, and nobody else does. 
Exactly, Elaine. So if you need to file a bankruptcy in Canada, you can't do it on your own. It doesn't matter what lawyer you might try to hire. They're not allowed to file it either. The government created a distinct role of a licensed insolvency trustee where we're the only professionals, the only officers of the court that are empowered to help individuals file either bankruptcies or consumer proposals. And what's great about dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee is it's not like you're hiring a lawyer and you're negotiating an hourly fee and you're worried about upfront costs. Everything is free and confidential to start. And then once you go through with the proceeding, everything is set by government tariffs. So there's no surprises. So let's talk a little bit about, about the process and the various steps. And the step one, Elaine, as you alluded to, is to connect with a licensed insolvency trustee. And at Sands & Associates, we've got a number of LITs. We serve the entire province. And whether you opt for a virtual meeting, a telephone meeting, or an in-person meeting, we'll talk with you confidentially to understand and assess your situation and discuss all all of the options that are possible for you to resolve your debt. So of, of the people that we help now, about 15 to 20% of them end up filing for bankruptcy. So it's far from a sure thing when you when you phone up Sands and Associates that you'll be put into a bankruptcy proceeding. What about 85% of people or 90 are doing these days um, is filing consumer proposals, which we're going to talk about in other segments. But by seeing a trustee, you're going to get access to the full suite of debt resolution options that are available to you. And it all starts with that free initial consultation. Okay, and then step two, Blair, for someone? Well, step two, if we've had a really good discussion, we've explained the options and the person decides that they need to move forward with a personal bankruptcy, we ask them to complete an information form. So it's nothing that you wouldn't anticipate having to provide. It's things like ID, it's your most recent bill statements, your last tax return, um, you know, proof of your income. It's all the things that are going to help the trustee assemble your file and get it ready to be submitted. And all of these things can happen pretty, pretty quickly. So sometimes when people come in thinking they need to file for bankruptcy, it's because, my gosh, their wages are being garnished at 30%. They're getting, you know, 70% of what their normal paycheck would be because creditors are taking it from them before it even reaches their their, their hands. So if we needed to work quickly, we could file a bankruptcy in as little as 24 hours and put a stop to those collection activities, those wage seizures, so someone can get pretty immediate relief once they've completed the information form, we've prepared the documents, and they've been in our offices or virtually met us with, you know, DocuSign or various things like that um, to sign the documents to start the proceeding. And, and the way to start that proceeding is two ways. You can call them at 1-800-661-3030. You're calling Sands & Associates, 1-800-661-3030. Or you can go to the website, sands-trustee.com, and start that process. So how about step number three, Blair? Well, so step three is you've met with the trustee, you've put the information together, you've signed the documents. Well, now you need to complete the bankruptcy process. And again, a lot of people think going into bankruptcy, oh my gosh, it's six or seven years, there's going to be notices in the newspaper, someone's going to show up at my house and start carting away my furniture. None of those things are going to happen. So what's going to happen is your trustee or your estate manager, who's a person that works very closely with the trustee, is going to guide you through the process. Our objective is the same as yours. Let's have no surprises. Let's get this done you know, as quickly as it can be done and as inexpensively as it can be done while respecting the law. So the core things that an individual has to focus on if they file for bankruptcy, and keep in mind they're not paying any of their debts anymore, they are not have no responsibilities to their creditors, what they have to do to the trustee is every month they have to complete a statement of income and expense. 
So it's a one-page budget sheet, and it just shows here's the income of the household, and you provide some pay stubs to confirm it, and then where did that money go? So how much went for food, groceries, entertainment, travel, so on and so forth. You don't need to prove your expenses, and the trustee is typically not going to audit you on them, but it's important part of bankruptcy is a financial rehab rehabilitation component. Uh, not everyone is in bankruptcy because they couldn't budget. Some people are, but not many, uh, but everyone can benefit from just having to keep a regular budget, and that's about 80% of the work that you do in bankruptcy is just keeping that budget every month. Um, aside from keeping that budget, there's going to be a payment obligation in bankruptcy that's going to be set by your income. So in the event that you're considered low income, which for an individual is with monthly income after taxes of less than roughly $2,400 in the province of BC, if you're low income, you pay just an administration fee um, over the nine-month period of bankruptcy. Again, not six or seven years, about nine months or so. Um, you pay a fee of about $2,300 set into manageable monthly payments. If if you're not low income, the bankruptcy duration is longer by about a year. It's about 21 months in total, and your payment is based on your income. It can scale up or down if your income goes up or down. Um, but again, all this is explained to individuals before they start a bankruptcy proceeding. So we said you'll keep a budget. You'll make some payments based on your income. The last thing is you're going to attend two financial counseling, uh, counseling sessions. They're normally done over video these days, occasionally in the office as well. They're great information to help you rebuild your your credit, have a good financial have good financial habits emerging from bankruptcy and really move forward trying to put this in the rearview mirror and rebuild all of your credit going forward. So those are the main steps that you've got to do. You prove your income, you make some payments, you keep the budget each month, and then you attend the two financial counseling sessions. Okay. So do you want to do step four or would you like to spend this last bit of time talking about uh, the signs that you recommend someone consider personal bankruptcy? Well, let's see here. What I'm thinking, Elena, step four is, is pretty quick. So that's just basically yeah. your certificate of discharge. Let's talk a bit about what bankruptcy doesn't mean, because I'm always concerned, you know, people have these various mis misconceptions, and sometimes that will stop them from reaching out because they think they know something for sure that actually isn't true. So, you know, again, step four in the proceeding is you finish the bankruptcy, your trustee gives you a certificate of discharge, and that legal document means that all of those debts that were causing all those issues, they're now legally gone. Full and final settlement, never again can they bother you so that's a really important step the trustee giving you that certificate excellent okay and I, I agree I think that's great and that's why you do this work and I don't do this work on a daily basis but there are there's so many good examples of what bankruptcy doesn't mean for people and it's really going up against all the myths and the ideas the the pre you know the already decided ideas that we have about bankruptcy so let's go through those Blair what does what does it mean and what doesn't it mean yeah, so a couple things first off. Again, people think bankruptcy, everyone's going to know about it. Well, they're only going to know about it if you choose to tell them, is generally how I would say it, because when you file a bankruptcy, obviously your trustee is aware, the people that you owe money to are aware, because they've got to be told to back off, and then my regulator is aware, but that's about it. There's no newspaper notice, there's no easily searchable online database, they Google somebody's name plus bankruptcy, it's just not going to show up. So in some cultures around the world, bankruptcy is very public. It is a public shaming, literally red tags on people's doors. There is nothing like that in Canada. So it's quite possible for someone to file for bankruptcy and people very close to them in their lives, sometimes even their spouses, to not be aware. And we don't advocate that. We generally say, you know, the support of the people that care about you can be really important as you go through a proceeding. But who you tell, when you tell, what you tell is generally up to you. Only the people that need to know about a bankruptcy are informed. Okay. 
it covers almost all the debts a person has? Yeah, this is a, a huge one because a lot of people think, um, you know, bankruptcy can only cover whether it's bank debts or private loans, but not government debts. There's various misconceptions, but bankruptcy is almost an all-inclusive type of remedy to deal with debt. The only almost is things like child support, spousal support, court-imposed fines. Like, these are the types of debts where logically you would think, okay, maybe you shouldn't be able to go bankrupt to get those reduced. But just about everything else, amounts owing to the government, whether it's GST, student loans, income taxes, whatever it might be. They can all be dealt with in a bankruptcy, including private loans, loans to government, just about anything you can imagine um, can be discharged in through a bankruptcy proceeding. So I have sometimes people say, I didn't reach out because I just thought there was no solution. Um, you should take some hope. There is always a solution to every debt problem. Um, and reaching out to a trustee you can let you know very quickly how the, the bankruptcy process could be of benefit to you. And the last piece, just a, a short one, about what you're going to be deprived of. I know people get very concerned about their assets or their income at this point. Yeah, very quickly, most people keep all of their assets following a bankruptcy. If you're going to have to surrender anything, your trustee will let you know right away. But just about everybody keeps all of their personal assets and whatnot. Um, and your wages get paid directly to you in a bankruptcy. So the payments that you have to make, you're under your control. Your trustee does not intercept your income ever in a bankruptcy. Pay attention to this website. It's sands-trustee.com. That's filled with all this good information. If you missed anything or if you know you want to take some action, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Although it might be offered with the best of intentions, there's a lot of bad financial advice out there. And I think anybody can attest to just watching television, listening to the radio. There's all kinds of stuff out there that you think, oh, that sounds like a good idea. But the good thing about Blair Mountain is that he knows better than a lot of people that when it comes to money matters and dealing with debt, there are an awful lot of pitfalls to avoid. And every day, Sands and Associates talks to people across the province who are looking for debt help and expertise. So, Blair, when offered financial advice, specifically or in general, what's the first thing that you would do? Well, thanks for the question, Elena, and I'm really happy to give a pretty straight answer is the first thing you do if someone tries to give you financial advice is you consider the source. So, you know, sometimes friends and family, they don't give us the best advice, and it could be completely unintentional, but they just might simply not have all the facts. So the number of individuals I have in my office who say, well, you know, my brother told me this, or my sister or my dad, or, you know, my friend said, you know, there's nothing I can do with tax debt, or my friend said, you know, my wife and my husband, you know, everybody's responsible for everybody's debt. There's just a lot of misconceptions that are out there. So you definitely need to make sure you're getting professional advice. First off, uh, even if there's someone well-meaning, they just might not have all the insights that are relevant to your specific situation. And if it is coming from a professional that you're getting advice, just make sure, is it the right person to be giving you this advice? You know, a little bit um, jokingly here, but you wouldn't ask your dentist to look at your car or you wouldn't take your taxes to your doctor. So I'm sometimes surprised uh, the individual that, that people do take financial advice from, you know, essentially they might not be aware of a licensed insolvency trustee, but you do need to be aware that there are people that can help you figure out um, how to deal with your debts. And there's other folks that might be well-meaning, might still be part of the financial industry altogether, but would really have no specific idea about insolvency because they've never faced it, or perhaps a client has never faced it. 
you know, even for myself, I worked with one of the biggest accounting firms uh, in the world for a number of years, and I had no idea about consumer proposals or personal bankruptcies, even though I worked in corporate restructuring. It just wasn't something a part of my day-to-day life. That's only when it impacted me personally. If someone I really cared about had a debt problem, I realized exactly how much I had to learn. And I was already a financial professional with a large accounting firm. So if I really didn't have a good grounding, the average person trying to give you advice you know, probably doesn't have a very solid grounding and might un- you know, unwittingly, unknowingly be sending you down a path that's not the best path for you. And then when you do get this advice or you hear something and then you go online to research it a little bit more, then again, you have to be so careful on where this information is coming from. Yeah, again, it's coming back to consider the source, you know, who's giving you the information and do they have a vested interest? You know, sometimes things can seem too good to be true and it's because they are. There's promises that are being made to you that once you've committed to something or paid some fees, you'll find out there's actually nothing backing those promises up. So definitely consider the source online, even doubly so uh, when it's coming from a, from a person that you might trust. Okay, so let's talk about um, the, the common types of financial professionals that are out there that you might suggest people folks with uh, uh, connect with rather on various money issues or matters. Exactly. There is the big four of financial professionals that I definitely recommend. You might not need every one of these at every stage in your life. Some people will, but for the most part, it's just really important to be aware of who's out there and what they can do for you. Uh, so number one on our list is a financial planner. So, you know, I often meet with people that are struggling to bridge the gap of their income and their expenses, and they don't have a long-term goal, a long-term view of where they're heading to. And there's the old adage that if you don't know where you're going, any path is going to get you there. And the odds are you're going to end up to, you know, an outcome that's not the the best one for you. You're not going to have that, you know, stress-free retirement with a whole lot of money put away unless you start pretty early with a financial plan and you make some choices, and sometimes they're not that hard of choices, but they require a focus um, to help you manage your income and your savings and ensure you're going to have an acceptable standard of living upon retirement. So a financial planner, I encourage people, you know, anybody new starting off in the working world to have those meetings early on, you know, even consider using a robo-advisor, you know, an online financial planner. The most important thing is just to start doing it, just to start putting money away. The best practice is up to 10% of your take-home pay saved for long-term growth. You're never going to regret Um, having that plan in place as early as you can in life. What about an accountant, Blair? How important are they? Well, it depends on your situation. For anybody who is self-employed, an accountant is absolutely critical uh, because, yeah, you can do your own taxes with CRA each year, uh, but there's a reason why accountants do charge the fees that they charge. They've got to be up to date on all of the new legislation every year. Um, they're going to help you negotiate or sorry, navigate, avoid any pitfalls with your tax filings um, and help you get set up right from the start. So if you're self-employed and you're not compliant with CRA, nothing can shut you down more quickly than CRA deciding they're going to start freezing your bank account or they're going to intercept money your clients are paying to you. They can literally choke off your revenue at the source if you're not compliant with CRA on a regular basis. So for most individuals, you know, who work a T4 job, who don't have a whole lot of complexity, they may not need an accountant now. They, you know, may need one periodically if they're doing significant transactions or something. But for anybody that's self-employed, an accountant should definitely be on your speed dial. It should be someone you're checking in with at least a few times during the year. Okay. So number three, and, and most, uh, most lawyers would say they should be number one, but number three <laughs> is a lawyer. How big, a, how big a role should they be playing in this? 
Well, this is definitely not an everyday thing. You know, very few people are going to have a lawyer on retainer all the time, you know, ready to answer any questions for them. I don't think it's someone you need necessarily on your speed dial as much as your accountant if you're self-employed. But if you are going through certain life events, it's definitely the case that getting professional assistance can save you a whole lot of, of heartache and, and pain later than if you try to do things yourself. Um, so a couple of significant things where you would want to get a lawyer involved is at the beginning of a marriage or cohabitation, um, you know, you may want to set out a cohabitation agreement. You may want, to, may want to be really clear about assets, about if the relationship doesn't work out, the time to do that is before you start cohabitating or get married. Uh, also on a separation or a divorce, you know, can you download forms online to try to do it yourself? Yeah, you can. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's the smartest thing to do. Uh, again, there's a lot of intricacies of court practice in BC and you're generally better served by having a professional work with you. Uh, when you're starting up a business, it can be important for a lawyer if it's an incorporated company to help you do the incorporation correctly. Um, and then another uh, sort of, you know, planning, if you're thinking about wills and estates, what sort of legacy, um, you know, what should happen if you were to pass unexpectedly, a lawyer is the person that would sit down with you to work through all of those things. So depending on your stage, depending on what significantly, uh, what significant things are happening in your life, a lawyer or somebody for a period of time will be very important, but typically not someone on an ongoing basis you're going to be speaking with all the time because you probably just can't afford to do that. Okay. So let's talk about your Bailey Will, Wick, your warehouse, license insolvency trustee. So yeah, and it really... Well, I would agree, Elaine. And of course, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, yeah. a, a bit facetiously in that, you know, my issue is there's just not enough people know about a licensed insolvency trustee. So a lot of people know about a financial planner, they know about an account, they know about a lawyer, but if they find themselves in debt, they often don't know where to turn. And they don't know that a licensed insolvency trustee is federally licensed, federally regulated, an all-inclusive code of ethics. Um, you know, you have recourse. If anything didn't go according to plan, you know, you, you can basically talk to the LIT's regulator. But an LIT is someone that's going to be able to help you navigate any situation where you're feeling uncomfortable about your debts. So it's not a foregone conclusion that if you sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, you're going to be filing a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Uh, you know, a majority of people that we sit down with, we're able to help them either figure things out under their own steam or help them perhaps refinance or find another solution. Um, but we're going to give you all that information at no charge. We're going to give you the straight goods, just like we do on this show every week, Elaine, of, you know, what are your legal rights and remedies when it comes to a debt? It's going to be specific to your situation, to your debts on a case-by-case -case basis. What does it mean to you? We're going to help you understand whether a debt is collectible. So even though a collection agent might be threatening you on a 10-year-old debt, we'll sit down with you and say, well, the statute of limitations is actually two years in BC. Here's all the little things about how, well, you might have some uncertainty versus not. But we're going to arm you with that information so you can make a better decision. We're going to tell you what you can do if you just can't pay your debts. You know, do you need to formally file or what can be done to you if, you know, someone takes legal action against you? But essentially, an all-encompassing, we're going to give you free, impartial advice that's going to give you the knowledge uh, and information about the debt solutions that are going to help you out of a tough situation. I want to throw in here, too, before we talk about the red flags when it comes to these professionals, uh, I want to give you the phone number for Sands & Associates. They have offices all over British Columbia. It's 1-800-661-3030. Their website, Sands 
business-trustee.com. You can set up that first opportunity to sit down and start to figure out your best next steps. If you're feeling like you need to do something that things aren't quite gelling the way they should be, this is a terrific place to start. So let's go back to those red flags, Blair. Um, What are the things that we need to pay attention to or should show up when we're dealing with these these four uh, financial people? Yeah, anytime you're dealing with a financial professional, I think first off, you got to trust your gut. You know, generally our intuition, sometimes we don't listen to it when we should. So really, if that little voice inside you or that feeling in your stomach is telling you something that doesn't feel comfortable, there could be something there. And that's a good indication you want to dive a little bit deeper. Um, I think you really want to make sure that the professional take the time to listen to you and understand your situation. Or do they seem in a hurry and they're just trying to, you know, fit you into a a pretty predefined box, so to speak? Um, Do they make the time and space to let you ask your questions and fully understand the answers? Um, you know, do you feel like you're being engaged in high pressure sales tactics or aggressive sales tactics? Is this, you know, a limited time offer? Well, if you don't sign today, I'm not going to spend any more time on this. Um, you know, these are all the types of things you'd never get from Sands and Associates. But when we hear from other uh, clients who have dealt with other debt health professionals, sometimes they felt pressured to sign in that moment. Uh, there was a false sense of urgency that was created. Uh, you know, you also need to look at who you're working with. What are their credentials? You know, are they accredited either in BC or across the whole country? And then finally, if something seems too good to be true, so, you know, if someone's promising you, you know, instant credit repair or we can help you reduce your debt, it's not going to hit your credit at all. Uh, that's just not going to happen ever in this world. If you have to restructure your debt, the price of restructuring your debt is that your credit does take a hit. It's generally more short term and less severe than people think, but there's no way to restructure your debt without your credit taking even a partial hit. So any promise that you can restructure your debt without a credit impact is just completely false and it should send you running the other way. Yeah. And I like I like the fact that you've you've included that option. Like get a second opinion. If this doesn't feel right, if this information doesn't feel good, there's nothing standing in your way to getting a second opinion. And it's such a good idea in a, in a situation like this. Oh, absolutely true, Elaine. And, you know, sometimes even if you've met with an LIT, for example, and you didn't feel, you know, so comfortable in that meeting, we've been the second opinion for so many clients who've met with a different LIT. They've come to us and said, okay, we feel more comfortable. We understand things a little bit better now. We're, we're good to go. But definitely any professional you're dealing with, they're not the only game in town. So it really is, do you feel that connection? Do you feel that caring, that empathy? You know, being in debt is not a comfortable situation. You want to make sure whoever you're dealing with is going to be understanding and is going to have, you know, the professional qualifications to help you deal with the situation, not spin wheels for a number of months and leave you in a worse spot than when you started. Yeah, such good advice, Blair. Also, check out their website, Sands and Associates. Just gives you so much good information right off the bat. You don't even have to call anybody, and you can access this at sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 and set up that first meeting as well as find an office near you. And I just want to remind you, they've got offices all over British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. So this segment is all about student debt. Whether you're looking for expert advice on paying off student debt or struggling with student loans that have become unmanageable, or you know someone who is, or they're a part of your family, Blair's going to share some very professional insights and tips on dealing with student debt. So Blair, is it common that people coming coming to a licensed insolvency trustee for help with student loans? It just seems crazy to me or so unfortunate that that is the case, but I have a feeling it is. 
Yeah, it's more common than you would think, Elaine. You know, it's definitely not the number one um, type of debt that, that people owe. You know, by far, that that's credit cards. Uh, but it's for a certain segment of the individuals that come to see us. You know, this can be a, just a completely crippling um, obligation if they finish school and just aren't earning an income that's commensurate to allow them to pay down the debt. Or sometimes if they weren't able to finish school um, and didn't get the benefit of the education but have that extra debt, um, you know, st- attached to them that they've got to deal with. You know, in terms of the size of student debt in Canada, we did a bit of research and I was, you know, quite surprised that there's 1.8 million borrowers in Canada who owe Canada student loans. That's just the federal component of it. Um, the average loan balance of federal student loans when individuals were leaving school, and this is as recent as 2019-2020, was about $13,500. And within about three years of people gradu- graduating from school, about 8% of people had default on that debt, which is actually quite high when you compare it to credit cards or other types of, of debts. Um, you know, student loan does have a, a much higher default rate. Um, and if we look at, you know, what's the average student loan, including, um, you know, private student loans from various banks, provincial student loans, so in BC, obviously BC student loans, and then the federal component, the average balance is around 25000 So you can imagine um, someone starting off their professional life, finishing school, uh, having a debt of $25,000 that they know they've got to chisel away from from. Uh, in terms of the number of people that come to see us who cite student loans as the main portion of their debt, it's about 13% of people. So about 88% of people said, uh, sorry, pardon me, that's the wrong number, about 55% of people said the credit cards were their uh, most significant financial uh, financial challenge. But again, it's a much smaller rate, but still significant at 13% for student loans. Wow. That's an incredible number. Uh, I can't imagine starting out in your life of having completed school finally, I'm sure that's how it feels, and then to be saddled with that kind of debt. Well, and what's also the issue, Elena, sometimes, you know, if it was just the student loan, that might be okay, but quite often people have been forced to accumulate other debts as well, sometimes just to make ends meet or when they're not able to work during the school year. Um, So, you know, sometimes people are juggling some credit card debt, which might have a pretty high interest rate, you know, it could be about 20%. When you compare that with also a student loan with a big balance, but ideally a lower interest rate, you know, maybe around 3 or 4%, it can lead to a situation where there's just payments being asked that the person isn't earning enough income to make. That's wow. That's a huge. Now, is there anything else you wanted to mention about that combination, student loan and credit card debt before we move on? Well, I think just in terms of the numbers, it can be useful for someone to, to hear an example. So, um, you know, if you've got a $10,000 student loan and an average rate around now is about 3.2%, uh, your monthly payment is about $185. And you might think that sounds okay. But if you've also got some credit card debt of $10,000, the interest rate on that is about 19.9%. That minimum payment is about $265. Um, so now you're up around $450 a month in minimum payments. And the credit card one, probably 90, 95% of that payment each month is just going to interest. So it's often the combination of the student loans and then the non-student loan debt that put people in a very tough position. Wow. Now, before we go any further uh, to talk about strategies for folks to manage student debt repayments, I just wanted to throw in here, if you already know that you need some assistance, that you need to talk to somebody at Sands & Associates and get a handle on either figuring out next steps or is my situation as bad as it feels right now, I'm going to give you their website at sands-trustee.com and the phone number to call to set up that first appointment, one 800 661 
So let's talk about some strategies, Blair, for people trying to manage their student debt repayments. Yeah, the, the first step, and this is with any type of debt situation that you're dealing with, is just to get organized. So put things in writing, start to take a look at your budget, list all of your debts, uh, consider if there's any grace period. So often there's you know at least six months after you graduate where you're not required to make payments, but you need to understand is interest still accruing or not, um, and then identify your payment due dates to make sure nothing surprises you. Uh, figure out how much your required minimum payments are each month, and then at that point you want to just take stock and say, okay, can I make those minimum payments? Is that going to fit into my budget? Um, If the answer is yes, um, then you want to figure out, well, what's your strategy for actually paying this debt down? Uh, Because quite often, minimum payments, especially on credit cards, they'll keep you in debt for quite some time. Um, So what you typically would want to do is to prioritize any other debts that you're carrying, rank them by interest rate highest to lowest, and anything extra in your budget you can pay beyond the minimum payments. You generally want to pay that to the highest interest rate debt first, because that's going to give you the best bang for your buck, save you the most interest later on. If you find you're not able to meet all those minimum obligations, there's a few different things that you can do. You know, one and a good place to start is to go to whoever's holding your student loans, whether it's Canada student loans, BC student loans, uh, or even a private lender, and see what options or programs they might have available to you. So oftentimes with Canada student loans, there's a repayment assistance plan. With BC student loans, there's student aid BC. Now, quite often, these won't be able to reduce the principal on your loan at all, but they might be able to give you a break on the interest or a holiday from payments or various things like that. So it's really important that you look and see what help is available to you directly from the lender. Um, But if you've exhausted those types of avenues, you can't make the minimum payments, um, the relief programs that are available to you just aren't going to solve your problem, then it might be the time to look at some more formal debt resolution options that can deal with student loans. And I just want to throw in the idea that your credit card is not is not one of those options. That's right. Yeah, you don't want to be just moving money around from one debt to another because typically you're spiraling higher and higher um, in interest rates and you're not actually getting further ahead. So a lot of people tend to do that. They call it you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, using credit to pay credit, but it's never a show that has a happy ending, so to speak. Yeah. So in our last sort of segment in this particular piece that we're talking about, can you sort of boil, there's so much information I know, but can you boil down a little bit how a consumer proposal and bankruptcy work in relation to a student loan? Like how can somebody tackle this? Yeah, exactly, Elaine. And what I want to give is some really clear guidance that people can rely on here. And it all comes down to how long have you been out of school in relation to your student loans. So first off, when you come to see a trustee, we're going to take inventory of all of your debts. And we're going to figure out what's a private student loan versus what's a government student loan. And very clearly, a private student loan is just something that didn't come from the government. So it came from a bank or maybe an individual. Most common, you know, it's a student line of credit from one of the big banks. Those types of student loans, there's no waiting period at all. If you file either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, they're treated the exact same as every other debt. They can either be reduced partially in a proposal or reduced completely in a personal bankruptcy proceeding. So that could happen, you know, right away upon graduation um, if you really were in a hardship situation. Now, if it's a government student loan, there's a completely separate set of rules that apply. And the key timeline to keep in mind is seven years. So the government wants you to make a good faith effort to pay off your student loans as well as you can. And if you file 
file either a bankruptcy or a proposal before seven years has elapsed since you were last a student, the student loan will not be discharged in that proceeding. So you might have a ton of other debts, some private student loans and whatnot. That would all be gone at the end of a proposal or a bankruptcy. But if it's a government student loan and you haven't been out of school for at least seven years, that debt would still be carrying through at the end of the proceeding. So it's hugely important people be aware of that seven-year rule. Yeah, that's a significant one. And what if it's less than seven years? What, it, it, are there, is there any option at that point? There is. I'm so happy you asked that because there's an option if it's been five years but not quite seven years. You can, if you file a bankruptcy or a proposal, once that is finished, apply to the court to say you're still experiencing hardship. You still you won't be able to make the payments in the future. There's still a bunch of factors working against you. And the courts could still discharge the student loan after five years. And you know, even if the student loan is not going to get discharged, it still makes sense to discuss the situation with the trustee because at least while you're dealing with your other debts, the student loan is is frozen. They can't can't collect from you anything like that. They can charge interest, but can't collect anything from you. So it can be a whole lot better for your situation just getting the help, even if it's less than seven years. And here's how you can do that. Sands and Associates, 1-800-661-3030 to talk to somebody about your situation. Or you can always check out the website and make an appointment through that as well. And that's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We're going to talk about in this segment the do's and don'ts for paying off credit cards. And this is always such an enlightening segment when we talk about credit cards because it still shocks me. Uh, so many pieces of the whole credit card system and the, and, uh, and what you get, what you get hung, hung with as well. So we're going to have some tips to deal with credit card debt and to deal with it for good. Lots of folks struggle to pay off credit card balances. Know this, you're not alone, and Blair's going to give us some insights into ways you can pay down your credit card debts faster, as well as some pitfalls to watch out for on that path. So Blair, as a debt management professional, what do you think it is about credit cards in particular that can make them such a nuisance, normalized, bigger than you think type of debt? Yeah, it's a good question, Elaine, and it is a fact that the credit cards are the dominant type of debt that really cause people issues when they come to see a licensed insolvency trustee more than five times higher than the next next type of debt that, that was called out. Um, so it can create a real problem for consumers. You know, why are they so common? Well, they're convenient, right? In, in our, um, you know, very fast-paced type of economy, you know, just tap to make a purchase, you know, putting your credit card online. A lot of places are stopping to take cash, especially, you know, during pandemic times and things like that. So they're convenient, they're common, and, you know, everyone just gets gets used to having credit cards um, in their wallet. But the issue is they're also costly, and that's what tends to really trip people up, is not understanding just, you know, how expensive it can be if you're not paying off your credit card balance each month. Um, and that debts can go from what you might consider a nuisance to something out of control relatively quickly. Uh, a couple examples here is if you had a $10,000 balance on a typical credit card, which is about 19.9% interest, if you were making only the minimum payments each month, it would take you 25 years and one month to pay off that $10,000. We're not talking $100,000, we're talking $10,000, taking you 25 years to pay off, and you would have paid interest of more than $12,000. So, 
you're basically paying back double what you borrowed plus more um, just by carrying that balance on the credit card. And the credit card companies make it so easy every month to just pay the minimum balance. Your credit will be great, but they know you'll probably never pay down that debt just working towards minimum payments alone, or at least take 25 years to do so, which is in, definitely not in your best interest. You know, even a balance on a low-rate card, so that same $10,000 at a 10.9% interest rate, which you know significantly lower, and that's definitely something people should try to do. We'll talk about that to try to lower their interest rates. But the minimum payments only, it would still take you 16 years and nine months. So even chopping the interest almost in half, you're still going to be in debt for quite some time, and you still pay interest of about $4,200 over the course of time you're paying off the debt. So even that, that, that $10,000 balance, which a lot of people might say, well, that doesn't sound like something you'd need such drastic help with, it can really turn into something bigger over time and hold people back from achieving financial goals. Yeah, and very quickly, right? I mean, it can happen so quickly with an interest rate like that. That's right, yes. All right, tips for paying off that credit card debt, which I'm pretty sure most of us have, if not on a month-to-month basis, sometimes months-to-months, right? Yeah, exactly. It's very few people that never carry a balance, you know, for at least, you know, a series of months. And some people are just stuck in a cycle for years of only making the minimum payments until they choose to do something different, like coming to see a licensed insolvency trustee, for example. Uh, one of the key do's uh, is to try to lower your interest rates. And a lot of people don't don't think to do this, but you could phone up your card issuer at any point and say, you know, and this generally works best if your balance is a little bit on the lower side, you've always paid on time, and you're a long-term customer, you could phone up and say, you know, my card's at 19.9%. I've done my research. I know there's other competitive cards out there that might be at 10.9 or a little bit lower. You know, I'd like to see what you can do for me to retain my business. And that can be an interesting conversation, especially if you're armed with your research ahead of time, knowing what the options are. So oftentimes your, your credit card issuer will make you aware of cards that they don't advertise heavily, but they will provide to you a, a in lieu of losing you as a customer to somebody else who would give you a better rate. So just by asking that question, you might be able to save some money. Um, and then sometimes you might find, okay, I've got to leave my existing card uh, card issuer and go to, to another card that's got a lower interest rate, but you can investigate whether there's the op- opportunity to transfer some balances to that lower interest rate card. But definitely be careful, especially in the last number of years, they put in a lot higher transaction fees than 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 uh, before. So sometimes it can be a 1% to 3% of the balance that you're transferring uh, can be just a cost of doing that transfer. So you need to make sure that makes sense, that you are saving money if you're transferring uh, balances from one card to a lower rate card. That's really good. Just the fact that you said transaction fee, because that's how it's going to show up on any documents as well. So that's that's it's good to know that that's what that is. Um, I also want to say, you know, sans-trustee.com is the website if you want more good information about credit card debt and how to manage it and how to do a better job. Their phone number, if you want to take action and talk to somebody, 1-800-661-3030 to really get this under under control. So I guess, can we look at some steps to take or or some dues, some significant dues? And I guess stop using it altogether would be the ultimate thing. Yeah, if you find yourself with a credit card debt that you're getting worried about, you know, one of the most important things you can do, and sometimes you'll see people, you know, okay, they're going to freeze their credit card and, you know, in a block of ice in the freezer or something like that, whatever it takes. But it's just the idea, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. So it's the idea of just stopping to use your credit card, because sometimes it can be really tough to see, well, you know, I've made these purchases, I paid this off, I'm paying this minimum fee, this interest is charged, it can just get really confusing. So it's really helpful if you've got a problem on a card to stop using that card 
card altogether, just so you can start to get it under control. Um, or if you do need to use the card going forward, use it for things you've already got the money set aside for. So if there's some uh, vendors or things you buy that you can only do with a credit card, well, once you get home, maybe make that payment right away or at least have the money set aside so you can cover that balance. You're not going to be increasing it over time. And I guess using a prepaid credit card would also fall in, in that category too as a good way to good way to manage it better. Yeah, so using there's two types of cards that kind of operate similarly, but with a couple key differences, a prepaid credit card or a secured credit card. And the benefit on both of those is you really can't get into trouble because the credit limit is going to be essentially however much money you've deposited onto the card. So a prepaid credit card, you could buy, you know, pick any big retailer, they all sell them. Uh, they can have relatively high transaction fees, so be aware of that. Um, but when you buy a prepaid card, say you put $200 on it, once you've charged roughly that $200, the card just going to stop working at that point. So you don't need to worry about, you know, having mul multiple years of interest. Um, you don't need to worry about going over your limit and not being aware of it. So it can be good, you know, just to constrain yourself a little bit if you need that. Uh, a secured credit card operates very similarly, uh, but with two important differences. One is usually the fees are much lower, in my experience, with a secured credit card than a prepaid. But even more important than that is a secured credit card is actually going to help you build your credit because you have to apply for a secured credit card. You don't just buy it off the shelf with no trace to you personally. When you apply for a secured credit card and you want to confirm this with your lender, but the best secured credit cards will report monthly to both credit bureaus, giving you a really good track record if you're trying to rebuild your credit and you're not able to get a credit card without a deposit, then a secured credit card can do a whole lot more from you for you than a prepaid credit card would do. Okay. Can we go through a couple of more dues just to remind people if they've stopped doing this to start doing it, especially when it comes to paying off if you've got a bunch of credit cards that you've been managing, the, the best thing to do with them? Yeah, I think the biggest thing to do is to be very cautious about using credit to pay off debt. So whether it's a balance transfer, as we talked about, if it's increasing your borrowing limits or even, heaven forbid, getting a co-signer to sign off on a consolidation loan for you, you really need to make sure you've done all of the analysis that you understand the potential downside. And if you do consolidate your debt, you know, clear off the credit card with a new loan, for example, it's so important to stop using that old credit card. I've seen again and again people have consolidation loans and they have the original cards that were consolidated back up to where they were before. So you really have to take care and change the behavior that caused the debt issue. Okay. What else? We've just got about 10 more seconds. Blair, what's the most important thing to do? Most important thing is to reach out for help. So don't suffer yes. alone. Don't suffer in silence. Reach out before you think your situation is so drastic. A trustee can put you in the right direction. That's excellent. Thank you. And how you do that is easily through their website, sans-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, offices all over British Columbia. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.